This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Well, open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 1. Today we're going to finish the first chapter of Mark, and this is a passage that really displays the, the power, the compassion, the tenderness and love of Christ. And I'm calling it the Master's Touch. The Master's Touch. Mark 1, and if you'll find verse 29 in your copy of God's Word, let's walk through this text together and see and hopefully feel and experience the Master's Touch on our lives. Let's look at God's word together. Mark 1 and beginning with verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we approach your word right now, that you would give us reverent hearts, that you would give us expectant hearts. May we be expecting you to come and move and to speak to us. Lord, this is a passage where we, we, we hear your voice. We feel your touch. We pray that by your spirit that you would encounter us this morning, that the master would encounter us today, and that we would go forth from here changed, having been touched by you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for a couple of weeks, a controversy has been raging in Great Britain about the subject of prayer. You say, well, what could possibly be controversial about prayer? Well, in our culture, turns out plenty could be controversial about prayer. 
couple of weeks ago, the, the leading advocate of atheism in the world, Richard Dawkins, who's British, suffered a stroke. And when the news of his stroke became public, the Church of England, the Anglican Church, sent out a tweet that just said the following, prayers for Richard Dawkins and his family. Now, they were just encouraging their Twitter followers to pray for a public person who was known to have suffered a stroke. And they probably felt like they were obeying Jesus' command to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you because the Church of England has certainly been the subject of Richard Dawkins' wrath many times. Well, the moment that this tweet went out, just encouraging people to pray for Richard Dawkins, an outcry went out from atheists who were saying, you Christians are morally wrong to pray for people who don't want you to pray for them. Now, one wonders why they would care, okay? Since they think that we're wasting our breath when we pray. Nevertheless, there was, a, there was an, an outcry. Well, this text is, is about prayer, and it's also about ministry to outsiders. If anybody is outside of the Christian faith, it would be Richard Dawkins. How are we to treat those who are on the outside? How are we to regard them? Well, we see something in this text about that subject as well. Let's walk through it together. The master's touch. The first thing that we see in this text is his touch and our response. His touch and our response. Verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew. Of course, Mark refers to uh, Peter as Simon. Sometimes he's called Simon Peter. Sometimes just Simon. Sometimes just Peter. We'll call him Peter. Okay, with James and John. So last time, two weeks ago, we saw that Jesus was in the synagogue. It was a Sabbath. And he's in the synagogue in Capernaum. And we saw that he was teaching with authority and demonstrating his authority over demonic power. Remember what happened there? He cast the demon out of a demon-possessed man in the synagogue that day. Well, just steps away from the synagogue in Capernaum is the house of Peter and Andrew. Now, some of you are going to Israel this week. I know this is one of the sites you're going to see. You'll see the synagogue in Capernaum, and then you'll walk over and you'll see the the house of Peter. And this is one of the sites in the Holy Land where scholars pretty much know this was actually the house. And probably, not only did Peter and Andrew live there, but probably Jesus lived there. When he was ministering in Galilee, you remember, his home base of operations was the city of Capernaum. He probably stayed at this house with, with, with Peter and, and with his extended family. And crisis has come to this house on this day. Because verse 30 tells us, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. 
and immediately they told him about her. Now, in our culture, when someone in our family gets a fever, uh, we're not thinking death, we're thinking drugstore, usually. Okay, but in that culture, in the first century, no antibiotics. And so, when somebody got sick, when somebody got a fever, death was always a very distinct possibility. And so they were, they were very alarmed. Everyone is alarmed except for Jesus. He never gets alarmed. <laughs> it's always in total control. And so verse 31 tells us, He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. Now remember, the Gospel of Mark comes from who? Peter. Okay, P- Mark, the Gospel of Mark is the eyewitness account of the Apostle Peter. Mark was Peter's protege. And so Mark in his gospel is writing down the eyewitness account that his mentor Peter had given him. And he writes it down the way that he would hear Peter tell it. And you can really hear Peter's voice, his eyewitness voice here in verse 31. Because literally in Greek it says he was taking her by the hand and lifting her up. I mean, you can just, you can hear Peter retelling this. You know, Jesus came and he, he, was, he was taking her by the hand and he was lifting her up. The fever was gone. And then he adds at the end of verse 31, and, and she began to serve them. And he means more here than just sort of reporting the mundane detail that the fever left and she began to serve. She began to, you know, make food or whatever. Mark is doing more than just reporting that Peter's mother-in-law was healed and she began to serve that day. Because one of the primary themes in the Gospel of Mark is that the mark of a disciple is servanthood. When our lives have been touched by Jesus, the normal response is that we have a desire to serve him. When we have been touched in a saving way by Jesus, the response is that we desire to serve him. And so we see many uh, texts in Mark, uh, like Mark 10 in verses 42 through 45, where it says, Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And so those of us who profess to be followers of the one who came not to be served, but to serve, are to be servants ourselves. Not to try to gain something from the Lord because we've already been given everything. We, are, we desire to serve Him now as Christians because we love Him. Because our lives have been touched by His grace. And this means that as believers we approach life differently. It means that we approach life not waiting to be served but looking for opportunities to serve. Beginning in the relationships that are closest to us. Beginning in our own families. As Christian husbands, uh, we're called to servant leadership in our homes. 
I know too many Christian men who want to jump past servant and get to leader. That's not the way it's supposed to work. We're not to view ourselves as the, our, the, the boss of our homes. <laughs> we should view ourselves as, as servants. We're there to serve our, our wives and our children. That gives us credibility to lead. But, but everyone within the family, instead of you know, uh, waiting for others to serve us, what if everybody in the family was looking for opportunities to serve other people? What about if in the workplace, if, if you were known as a follower of Christ, as a follower of the one who came not to be served but to serve, what if you were known as the person in your workplace who was always looking to help? Not waiting to be served, but proactively looking for opportunities to serve and be helpful. Would not that give credibility to your witness? And in the church, it means that we're looking for opportunities to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. It means that we don't approach the, the, the church as consumers, but as contributors. It means we're not looking at church as, oh, okay, well, this is a place where I come and, you know, I, I, I take in and the staff sort of, they, they, they put together these worship services and, you know, they're singing and they're sermons and, and you know, they, they, they put together these programs and stuff and, 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 and you know, I'm, I'm here to kind of like take in and, con, and, and consume ministry. Now, to be a servant means that you view yourself as a contributor to the ministry. Okay, that you're a part of things. This is service. Okay, and, and so the, the normal response of people, when our lives have truly been touched in a saving way by the Lord Jesus Christ, is that he gives us a, a desire to serve. I mean, the New Testament knows nothing of somebody who you know, claims to be a, a Christian who you know, has no desire to, 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 to serve the Lord. So the first thing we see here is his touch, our response. Second, we see his open door of compassion and power. Verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. Now remember what day is it? It's been the Sabbath, right? The Jewish Sabbath begins Friday sundown, ends at Saturday sundown. The reason Jesus has been in the synagogue earlier is because it was the Sabbath day. And so sundown on, on Saturday, people in the Jewish world come out. One time I was in Jerusalem uh, down on Ben Yehuda Street, which is sort of a central uh, shopping hub in Jerusalem. And I was there about mid-afternoon on Saturday, and it was just dead. And then all of a sudden the sun went down, <laughs> and it was just like a buzzing beehive of activity. People were coming out of the woodwork. And that's the way it, it is here in Capernaum. It, the, the sun goes down, Sabbath is ending, and so people are coming out, and word is getting out. Word is getting out about what happened in the synagogue, this demon-possessed man who was healed. Word is getting out about the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. And so, what happens? That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. Now, now listen, Capernaum is not a big place. Capernaum was just a, a small town. 
But even in this small town, the people had big problems. It's a broken world. You know, I read recently that the, 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 the epidemic of drugs, wow, wow, there is a scourge. It's just an epidemic of drugs in America today. And I was reading an article that it's just as bad in small towns and in rural areas now as it is in big cities. This is just a small town, but the people there have big problems. It's brokenness. We live in a broken world. And what's happening at that door in Capernaum that day is new creation. Because God has come to mend his broken world. And we see that in Jesus. That's what we see in these healings and these exorcisms. This is God coming to his broken world and beginning to make things right. Now one day Christ is coming again and it's going gonna, it's gonna to all be right. Everything sad is going to come untrue. And the brokenness is going to be completely gone. But Jesus here is, is beginning to do new creation. He's be beginning to, to put the brokenness back together again. That's what's happening in these healings and in these exorcisms. And so we see here in verse 33 that the whole city was gathered together at the door, and they found an open door of love and power and compassion in Christ. And it says in verse 34, He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew Him. Now, we talked about this last time. The demons recognize who Jesus is before anybody else. They're part of the supernatural world. And when the demons would see Jesus, they would know immediately this is the Son of God. And they were terrified. And because Jesus knows that they know who he is, Jesus tells them to be silent. You say, well, doesn't Jesus want people to know that he's the Son of God? Well, eventually he does, yes. But at this point, they're not ready for it. See, they, they had all kinds of false assumptions about who the Messiah was going to be. They thought the Messiah was going to come and lead a revolution, a military revolution, against the Romans. Well, Jesus is going to lead a revolution, but it's going to be a very different type of revolution. It's going to be a revolution of love and humility and servanthood, and ultimately it's going to be seen at the cross Jesus' true identity as the Son of God and what all of that means is truly going to be perceived in Jerusalem at Calvary. And so toward the end of this gospel, what happens? The Roman soldier, the centurion, looks up at Jesus as he's dying on the cross and he says this, in Romans 15:39 and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last he said truly this man was the son of god now listen we can't understand who jesus is or proclaim who he is apart from the cross paul says to the church at corinth I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, when Paul tells us about the content of the gospel that we proclaim, he says this, he says, I deliver to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is our message. Our task is not to go out into this broken world and tell broken people, hey, get your act together. Buck up. Get it together, man. Now, there are probably people in your life that you feel like talking to like that sometimes, right? But but see, our task is different. Our task is to go out into a broken world and tell broken people about a Savior who has the power to heal and the power to fix their brokenness. Our task is to go forth and, and tell outsiders, tell people who are broken about Jesus, who took their sins upon himself, died as their substitute, rose from the dead, and who can give the Holy Spirit, give power for living to those who will turn to him in repentance and in faith. Our task is to go forth and to tell broken people, look, there's an open door of love and compassion in Jesus Christ. And you can't do it. You can't save yourself. You can't fix yourself. But Jesus can. We go forth and tell them about the healer, about the Savior. We don't go out and tell people just to do better and try harder. That's not the gospel. We tell them about Jesus. We tell him about his open door of compassion and power. Third, we see something in this text about his priority. His priority. Verse 35. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Now, this is something that we see over and over again in the Gospels. The normal practice of Jesus was to get away for a period of time by himself and spend time with the Father. His normal practice was to get up early, get alone with God, get away from the busyness, get away from the the whirlwind of activity, and get alone with the Father and draw strength from him. Now let me ask you something. Do you think that you need that less than Jesus? You think you need prayer less than Jesus? You think you need to get alone with God and be refreshed by a spirit less than Jesus? You say, well, does it have to be early in the morning? No, it doesn't have to be early in the morning. Although if you're like me, if it doesn't happen early in the morning, it just doesn't happen. But it needs to be sometime. Okay? We need, we need to be refreshed. We need to go back to the well. We need to understand that life and that ministry has to flow out of a relationship with God. Because if it doesn't, then you're going to be overwhelmed by life. And you're going to be running on empty. And you're going to be burning out. 
We talked a moment ago about serving God, but listen, if you try to serve God without seeking the face of God in prayer, your ministry is going to be anemic. Your life is going to lack power. And I don't know the challenges of your life, but I do know this, that every single one of them, the answer is found in the power of God. I know that God can do more in five minutes in answering prayer than what we can do in 50 years of self-effort. And so prayer, worship, is to be a priority. But before doing comes being. Before anything else, you are a child of God. He wants to hear from you. He wants you to be alone with Him. He wants you to draw strength from Him. We need to understand the priority of worship. And not just in our personal lives, but listen, God has set aside this day, the Lord's day, so that we can draw strength from corporate worship. I'm amazed at how casually a lot of Christians treat worship in our culture. You know, when I was growing up, Unless the Hayes family was out of town or ill, and I mean really ill, we were in church. And it wasn't because my parents were, were, were rigid or legalistic. They were none of that. It was because they understood the priority of worship. It was because they understood that God has set this time aside uh, for us to come and to go back to the well and draw strength and be spiritually nourished so that we can go out and do life. And Jesus understands that. Now, the, the disciples don't get it. What are, what are, they, what are they doing here? Look at, look at their reaction. It says in verse 36, Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And in Greek, this is not, this statement in verse 37 is not neutral. It's not like they're just informing him and saying, everyone is looking for you. It's like they're accusing him. Everyone's looking for you. What are you doing? Come on, listen, we had momentum in Capernaum. These healings were taking place and, and everything and, and people were being attracted. Hey, let's strike while the iron is hot. Jesus, what are you doing? Getting out here alone, retreating? And the one who's leading the charge of criticism here is who? Peter. <laughs> Peter, the one whose testimony is directly behind this gospel, comes across worse in this gospel than in any of the four gospels. That shows Peter's humility. Because as he's retelling these things, you know, he's basically, he's basically saying, you know what, I was so clueless. I was so obtuse. I, just, I didn't get it. I didn't understand that, that he needed to be alone with the Father and that we need to be alone with the Father and that ministry and life needs to flow out of that relationship with God and that we need time and prayer. You know, this is a point that is made so powerfully in, in the Gospel of of Luke and Luke 10 it says now as they went on their way Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching but Martha was distracted with much serving and she went up to him and said 
Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Listen, your first priority in life is to sit at his feet. And everything else in life has to flow from that. Fourth, trading places. Trading places. Verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Now the first thing you need to understand about what's going on here is that this guy is not supposed to be here. Lepers could not enter into a crowded place like this. They couldn't come into a town or a city. Lepers had to stay within 50, at least 50 paces away from other people. They had this terrible skin condition, which people thought of as being contagious. And, and, and to inadvertently touch a leper would cause you to be ritually unclean. So if you, if you inadvertently touched a person with leprosy, you had to go through all kinds of rituals and everything to be made ceremonially clean once Again, and so whenever a leper got within 50 paces of someone, they had to call out, unclean, unclean. In other words, don't touch me. And so when, when people recognize who this is that is kneeling before Jesus, and they recognize that he's a leper, they would have been recoiling. But Jesus is not moving backward. Jesus reaches forward. He reaches forward and he does the unthinkable. Verses 41 and 42, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Now think about this. See, the most disastrous part about leprosy was not just the skin condition itself, although that that was terrible, and skin would fall off and everything else. The worst part was the separation. You had to be separated, physically separated from your family, from your friends, from human contact. Jesus doesn't have to touch him in order to heal him. Jesus could have just spoken the word and he would have been healed. But Jesus in compassion reaches out and touches this man in love. And then he speaks words of love. Max Dupree is a Christian business leader writes a lot of books on leadership. And in one of his leadership books, he tells about the birth of his granddaughter, Zoe. And Zoe's biological father had checked out. And so Max, as the grandfather, was really playing the role of father. Zoe was born prematurely. She weighed about a pound, seven ounces at birth, given very little chance of living. She was so tiny, he could take his wedding band and slide it up her arm to her shoulder. And there was a caring nurse in the NICU named Ruth. And she said to 
Max, the grandfather. She said, you're going to be the surrogate father. And she said, I want you to visit Zoe every day. And when you come, I want you to take the tip of your finger and I want you to caress her. I want you to rub the tip of your finger on her her arms and legs and body. And as you're doing that, I want you to tell her how much you love her. Tell her again and again how much you love her because she has to be able to connect your voice and your touch. And so every day he would come. Here's this little tiny thing, wires, IVs coming all out of all parts of her body. And he's touching with love and speaking words of love. And Zoe made it. And Jesus here gives this man his, his voice and his touch, doesn't he? And he does it to us. Right? He gives us his voice. He gives us, God's, he gives us his word. He gives us his touch. He gives us the church. He gives us brothers and sisters in Christ. He gives us his Holy Spirit. And look at this. Nobody wanted to touch a leper because they were afraid they'd be made unclean. But see, Jesus here in touching him, Jesus is not made unclean. Jesus makes him clean. It's not the leprosy that's contagious. It's the love of Jesus that's contagious. Now, who are the lepers in our day? Make it more personal. Who are the lepers in your life? Who are the people in your life that everybody else recoils from? Who are the people that you go to school with, work with, whatever, and for one reason or another, people don't want to be around them? Are you going to be like everybody else? Or as a follower of Christ, are you going to move toward the outsider in love. What about our church? You know, Dr. Poplin preached a penetrating message at homecoming from the parable of the prodigal son in which he challenged us not to be a church full of elder brothers who scorned the prodigal when he came home and looked down upon him, but to be a church with the heart of the Father, a church that welcomes lost sinners, a church that goes down the road to meet lost sinners. Because we know that all of us are just sinners saved by grace. What else do we see here? Verses 43 and 44. And Jesus charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone. Now why does he say this? Same reason he tells the demons to be silent. Uh, Jesus here is not interested in hype. He's not interested in just being known as a a miracle worker. And so he tells this man to to keep this healing under wraps. But what does he do? Verse 45. He went out and began to talk freely about it. And to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. And so this man's disobedience causes Jesus to have to change his whole strategy. Jesus, for at least for a while, he can't even enter a city or a town anymore. He has to stay outside in the desolate places. 
Do you see how they traded places? See, before, the leper had to stay outside. Now Jesus has to stay outside. See, Jesus has relieved this man's burden, but he's had a burden placed on him. Now what happens at the cross? Jesus takes our burden on himself, doesn't he? So that our burden can be lifted. Jesus takes the burden of sinful lepers like us on himself. He takes our, he takes our sin. He takes our burden on himself on the cross. So that the burden of our sin can be lifted. Jesus becomes an outsider so that we can be an insider. Jesus is crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. They didn't crucify people inside Jerusalem. Too terrible. Too awful. Crucify people outside the walls of the city. Jesus takes our sin upon himself, and he becomes the ultimate outsider, nailed to a cross outside the city. So that we can be inside. So that we can be ushered into the very presence of a holy God. Because we have a Savior who took our sin upon himself, took our burden, and became the ultimate outsider. So that we can be ushered into the Father's presence and stand in grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your amazing love, your amazing saving touch on our lives. We pray that we would respond to your saving touch by being servants. Servants who love you, out of love, desiring to serve you, because of love, desiring to worship you, desiring to make a difference for you in this world. We thank you for your love and and trading places with us and, and, and dying as our substitute so that we can have new life. Thank you for being condemned so that we can be accepted. Thank you for, for becoming the ultimate outsider so that we can be brought into the presence of holy God may we be continually blown away by that amazing grace so much so that we desire to go forth and to serve and to share what you have done for us with a broken world that so needs to hear it so needs to experience your love we pray it in Jesus name Amen. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about a relationship with Jesus, we would love to talk with you more about that, pray with you. I'm going to be here at the front for you during this time of invitation or after our service today. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about being a part of our community, part of the family of God, we would love to talk with you about that. And and again, we, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.
I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father. You are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.